Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Let me invite you into a special bonus episode of our podcast as we share the recording from our Spring Book Club author event. My colleague, Jasmine Obeseker, interviews Dr. Gordon T. Smith, theology professor, university president, and author of Your Calling Here and Now, Making Sense of Vocation. Listening in on the finale of our Spring Book Club is a delightful glimpse into the book club community as they dig deeply into the content of Your Calling Here and Now with the author himself. We are sharing the entirety of the book club finale here in this episode, and it begins with Jasmine's introduction of our guest. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. Welcome, everyone, to the finale of the Spring Book Club hosted by InterVarsity's Women Scholars and Professionals. We've had some great conversations on Gordon Smith's Your Calling Here and Now, Making Sense of Vocation, and today we are delighted to have Dr. Smith join us. Dr. Gordon Smith is the president of Ambrose University and Seminary in Calgary, Alberta, where he also serves as professor of systematic and spiritual theology. He has been with Ambrose since the summer of 2012. He is also a teaching fellow at Regent College, Vancouver, British Columbia. Gordon Smith's areas of particular interest are the nature of conversion and religious experience, spiritual discernment and effective decision-making, the sacraments, and the question of calling and vocation. Dr. Smith has published several books reflecting his wide range of interests from topics such as institutional intelligence, how to build an effective organization, to welcome Holy Spirit, a theological and experiential introduction. He is an ordained minister of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Gordon Smith grew up in Ecuador and has also lived for a decade in the Philippines. He is married to Joella, who is an artist and gardener, and they have two married sons and six grandchildren. Gordon, thank you for being with us today, and welcome. Uh, Jasmine, a, uh, a delight and an honor. Thank you for your gracious introduction. I know those words all came from somewhere else, but still appreciate that. Uh, honored to be with you and trust that this will be a fruitful and uh, encouraging conversation for one and all. Before we delve into the book, could you tell us a bit about yourself? How did you come to Christ, and what are some of your formative experiences as a Christian? Wow, and how much time do you want me to take on that? <laughs> Thanks. Um, I grew up as the child of missionary parents in South America. So I speak Spanish, but grew up in Ecuador. Um, but in my university years, um, early on, I would say my first year, uh, really felt disillusioned by the Christian faith. 
very much disillusioned by the church community of which I was a part, which was a church just down the street from the public university where I was studying. Um, I remember, I, can, I know the exact moment on the sidewalk, I can walk there, I've actually gone there with my wife and said, here's where I was standing in which I said, that's it, I've had it with the Christian faith because the pastor of that church routinely disparaged the university as a godless secular place. And I was loving it. I, the university, those were the best years of my life. Um, so I left the faith, but between my second and third year of my university studies, I, I took a year out to travel. Frankly, travel back then, I'm, I'm gonna date myself here to say the <laughs> least, in the 70s in ways that you cannot now. Um, hitchhiked all around Europe, hitchhiked across Northern Africa, worked on a kibbutz in Southern Israel, uh, just near the Jordanian border, and then by bus all the way to South India, and then all the way back. And on the way back, visited an acquaintance who had a book in his coffee table entitled Labrie. Hmm. And I had heard about Francis Schaeffer, um, but I decided right then and there, I'm, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna drop in. Um, and and I'm, I'm talking now, I'm age 20, 21. Uh, what two things happened in such short, powerful exchange that I think are relevant to the church today and to evangelism today. One was a radical hospitality. I'll never forget the moment of walking up the sidewalk and uh, somebody steps out the door and greets me and says, do you have a place to stay? It was just this remarkable, timely word. Years later, I, I actually launched a book at Labrie entitled mm -hmm. Beginning Well. And I told this story and they all laughed. They said, everybody that walks up the walk, that's the first question they ask. It was no big deal. <laughs> I said, fine, but it was what hit me. And then for the next six weeks to be involved with Francis Schaeffer preaching in the morning and his son-in-law, Udal Middleman, lecturing in the evenings. But it, what it was, was a community that took the life of the mind deeply seriously. Mm -hmm. For what it's worth, I differ now deeply with Francis Schaeffer's apologetic. Mm -hmm. I would not use Udal Middleman as a reading in a course that I would teach. Nevertheless, um, at the time that was uh, deeply formative for me. Mm. Uh, came back to Canada, felt a call to ordain Christian ministry, went on to seminary. Um, and my wife and I, then I took a pastorate in Peterborough, Ontario, before we went to the Philippines. In the Philippines, I pursued doctoral work with the Jesuits uh, with the Jes at a Jesuit university. Uh, one day in the hallway, the dean of the university's faculty of theology uh, chatted with me and said, you know, you're at a Jesuit university, you should do a retreat. Um, so I did, I did a retreat with um, Father Thomas Ryan, uh, Thomas Green, pardon me, Thomas Green, and one thing led to another, and I have become very intrigued by the whole notion of Ignatian spirituality, uh, the, the, the notion of an Ignatian approach to discernment and decision-making. And I would view that as significant a turning, a turning point in my career as any. Eventually, I published a book with University Press entitled The Voice of Jesus, which was just an attempt to make that very fine theological and spiritual tradition accessible to people in my, I don't know where your worlds are, so I don't want to use shorthand here, but my evangelical theological and spiritual tradition. Um, and so when, I, when, when, my, when my bio says I'm interested in religious experience, 
I did my doctoral work around the theme of conversion and Christian initiation. And then I have published on that and on discernment more than once uh, since then. Mm -hmm. uh, published two books on the whole question of conversion and religious or Christian initiation. I still think in a post-Christian secular age, we still need to rethink what this looks like. We're still using approaches to evangelism uh, that reflect revivalism of, a, of, frankly, a century ago, let alone uh, how people come to faith now in the context and settings in which we are located. Um, given who I'm talking to, I don't know all of you, but I'm just going to make a rash assumption here. And if it if I lose social political capital rapidly, then you can just leave or whatever it is you can do. It's not so awkward. But um, InterVarsity Publishing, uh, IVP, uh, was very formative when I, when after I, I mean, they published all the books by Francis Schaeffer, but also after that. Uh, during my first pastorate, I would say 60, 70% of the books I was reading were being published by InterVarsity. So it was hugely meaningful that when my wife and I came back to Canada in the late, in the early 90s, they were the first, uh, they were the first publishing house that was willing to take on one of my projects, listening to God in Times of Choice. And then beyond that, I've been publishing regularly with InterVarsity um, and privileged to be involved in InterVarsity staff groups, uh, a graduate fellowship, and so on that was mentioned earlier by Karen. Um, I should also add that my, my vocation or my calling into academic administration is deeply rooted in a conviction I have that nothing is more transformative or uh, impactful in the life of, but it comes to human flourishing than quality education. Whether it's the, 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 the second grade teacher for my granddaughter who's had such a powerful impact on her life, this shy retiring little girl overshadowed by her older sister who I love dearly, one of my dearest persons in the world. But Kaya, her grade two teacher, gave her voice, gave her confidence, gave her the capacity to speak for herself and argue with her sister and with me. Uh, <laughs> uh, watching that happen has just been such a source of delight to us. But I'm in the Philippines. They needed a dean for the seminary. I turned them down until they came back to me and said, in actual fact, Gordon, we have no one else. Um, so I didn't kind of go into the role because they were all excited about what I would bring to it. They literally said, there's nobody else. But I moved into academic administration and in, I've been in that world now, uh, literally since my early 30s. Uh, well, I would say 33, 34 in there. Uh, and it's been my world. And what I find the deepest joy in is creating an institution where people like you can flourish in the work, the, the academic vocation to which you are called. Uh, it doesn't mean that faculty don't cause me grief, uh, don't get any ideas, but um, what I find is that there's, there's I, I find I have no deeper joy than walking down the hall, walk, looking through the glass door and seeing a faculty member that I was involved in recruiting and seeing mm -hmm. students that have chosen to study at our institution, mm -hmm. and there they are in the classroom. And you know that magic is happening, even though I'm not in the room. My joy comes in creating the uh, the organizational or institutional platform in which mm -hmm. it can happen. I'm a father to two sons uh, who have married very, very well. Uh, they married up. I don't know if you use that expression in your parts <laughs> of the world. We love these two women deeply. And I have, as was mentioned, six grandchildren. The first three were grandsons. Okay. And then Karis was born. 
Karis is now my 16-year-old granddaughter. Uh, she has changed everything. It is just phenomenal to have this kind of a relationship with a 16-year-old girl who's, uh, who I've tracked with for the last 16 years. Uh, for a man at my age, late 60s, to have this kind of relationship is, is stunningly special. She is grace and nothing but grace to me. We, we, are, we are texting or messaging constantly, and it's just huge fun. So that's a joy. But as, as mentioned, I'm married to Joella, uh, my life partner and artist and garden, gardener. And um, we, we look forward to the prospect of growing old together. Um, what else should I say, Jasmine? That's enough. Too much, probably. Well, thank you. It's very fascinating. It's fun listening to all of that. And uh, so if we get to your book that we all read over the semester, uh, we read your calling here and now in large measure because of your invitation to consider the here and now of our lives rather than getting caught up either in the past or the future. Can you tell us why you felt focusing on folks' present circumstances was important and correspondingly why you feel that looking back and looking ahead isn't always helpful? Oh my. Well, um, you warned me about this question, but you also on this sheet says that I don't have to answer any of these questions if I don't want to. Yes. So I I just, you did say that. So just so you know, I can say no at any given time here. I'm, and I don't know if I should just start now and get that over with. First of all, um, I am um, I'm deeply impressed that, and sometime I'd like to write on this, that nostalgia is a spiritual disease. Mm -hmm. uh, the failure to embrace the new reality in which we live. And I'm realizing that all of you, most of you probably are, are American citizens. So I will, I will delve, I will not refer to political issues south of the border. Uh, hmm. But as Americans and Canadians, we can take on the Brits at the slightest provocation. So let's do that. Um, but in my estimation, Brexit is quintessentially an act of nostalgia. I don't know how to break it to my British friends gently, but Britannia no longer rules the world. And it's been a century since they did. But the only hope for the UK is to embrace the reality that we live in now. Not as we wish that it was, but that hmm. it actually is. That few things are more empowering the naming reality as it actually is. That's my job as a president. Mm -hmm. What is the reality in which we are located? Not what we wish was the case, wishful thinking, but what is actually the case. And no, absolutely no place for nostalgia. Looking back to a, a previous era that presumably we were, what? We were what? Uh, white privilege? What are you looking back to? What are you hearkening back to that you wish we could go back to? And whether it's religious or political or ideological, I think it's a waste of time and energy. So part of our job is to name the reality we are in now, uh, not as we wish it was and not nostalgically, but with grace and courage. And sometimes it's painful. I'm a widow now, or I'm a widower, or I'm divorced. I wish I wasn't divorced. Fine, but you are. So this is your new reality. And what I, uh, what I, want, to, what I want to trumpet is that the God whom we worship, and I don't make any assumptions about all of your faith commitments, but the God whom most of us worship is a God of remarkable capacity to adapt uh, to new circumstances, to new situations, now to him who's, who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Mm -hmm. So this is our new reality. What are the possibilities of grace in this reality? 
And I need this, I need, I need to hear this message constantly. Today, in this time, and in this place, what am I being called to say, and what am I being called to do? And when I look back, I get lost in nostalgia. When mm -hmm. I look forward too much, I think what happens for me is I start, I, I'm not living in the reality of what I need to do today, regardless of what I want to see happen down the road. Mm -hmm. So I love the language of Martin Luther King Jr., the long arc bends towards justice. What is the justice towards which I need to be working? And so recently in a conversation about uh, senior administration within organizations, a person got up who was an interim president of a theological seminary. And we asked him to speak out of his experience as an interim. Mm -hmm. Halfway through his remarks, he says, you know, we're all interim. We are all interim. None mm -hmm. of us are in our roles indefinitely. None of us are, in, are institutionalized in our roles. We're all interim. Whether you're 15 years in a role, you're interim. You pick up the baton from the person who came before, and you're passing on the baton to the person who's going to come after. And what you're asking is, in this season, at this time, for this role that I'm responsible for and to, what am I called to be? What am I called to do? What am I called to say? And I also want to say that when I'm in a classroom. I teach. I teach. I teach a course a semester. I don't, I'm not expected to. Amongst my peers, I'm the only one that does. I just never want to lose touch with the classroom. But mm -hmm. I love the exercise, closing the door and realizing now for these people in this time, in this place, I'm fully present, 100% present to these people, to these students, this year's version of whatever course it is I'm teaching. That kind of um, existential presence, I think, is the key to uh, vocational integrity. Did I respond to your question? Yes, thank you. And thank you for saying that nostalgia is a spiritual disease. I need to hear this too. Uh, and uh, moving on to our next question. Um, many of our women are spinning place that they hope won't crash. Can you suggest how women who carry heavy responsibility, both at work and at home on a day-to-day -day basis, could incorporate a more sustainable pace to our lives. <laughs> how, how, what, what are you thinking? A white male at my age is going to speak to women and tell them how to manage their lives. What are the odds that I'm going to even weigh in on this? Um, uh, so I'm going to quote my wife. That's the safest okay. approach I can possibly take in response to this question. Joella has just finished reading uh, a book entitled Essentialism. And she is on my case that um, there are things that I'm doing that I don't need to do, that nobody's expecting me to do, or if they are, they don't have the right to expect it of me. And one of the geniuses of the book, according to Joella, is the capacity to say no. Um, it is, I think, um, and I, again, this is all, this is dangerous terrain, but I, it, I, my impression is that women in our religious and social subculture um, are conditioned, are socialized to be amenable, to be willing, to say yes, to be a servant, that this is kind of how we're wired. Not so much wired, but socialized. Hmm. And it's it's, it's, if it's hard for me to say no, I think how much greater it is for most of you to say no. To say no to your mother who says, how come you're not visiting me more often? to say no to the expectations of the dean 
who you're, you know, you're in, you're in tenure track and you're trying to make yourself an amenable member of the faculty. It's very hard to say no. How to say no at the church where uh, just one more thing that you can do, but I think the capacity to say no is crucial and to do so in accountability to two or three other peers, more than likely women, but maybe not just women, but two or three others to whom you're accountable for every blooming time you say yes. And these are women who look you in the eye and say, why did you say yes? Who were you trying to please? What expectations were you trying to fulfill? What guilt were you trying to assuage when you said yes? So um, having said all that, I don't doubt that, that even if you did say all the no's, the fact of the matter is you're, you're, you're having to navigate so many different things that is part of the part of the, the angst of life and work in our social context, where we want to have flourishing careers, we want to be thoroughly domestic and create safe spaces for ourselves or for our partners or for children, for those of us that have children. Um, and all of that matters. And most of us around, around this table, around this room, are probably active participants in faith communities. And we have something to bring that would help with the flourishing of those faith communities. And we get huge pressure to be good neighbors to our Muslim neighbors that just move next door. And I need to be kind of present to them. And I've got two gay men on the other side and I wanna be the most cool evangelical ever that can actually reach out and be friends to them as well. And so all of this uh, compounding, uh, but the sheer fact of the matter is we can't. So I wonder if vocational integrity demands the capacity to say, this is what I need to do. So in the book, I use the image of concentric circles. I use it in the context of, um, I mean, it's highly autobiographical. I'm trying to make sense of my own work, well aware that I have fewer pressures on me than most of you have on yourselves. Um, but I just wonder if good conversation with peers about where we're saying yes and where we're saying no might help us to navigate that. Mm. And please know I offer it with every last caveat I can pull out of my body. I suspect the pressures are exponentially greater for most of you than they are for me. You, Jasmine, you even, you even made a little aside early on. We know you're very busy. Um, it's interesting to me that that should presumably give me free, greater freedom to say no. People assume presidents are very busy, uh, but um, what am I gonna say to this? I'm not, I refuse to be. Now today was, an, was a crazy day, but all of us are gonna have those kind of days. But so help me God, I'm gonna be a Sabbath observer. So help me God, after this phone call, I'm gonna be on the phone with my granddaughter. I cannot, I can never be so busy that certain things don't happen in my life. <laughs> So however much I'm socialized in a, in a way that's easier for, than for most of you, I still have a wife who doesn't think I say no often enough. So the next question is about uh, working in secular universities. Uh, some, some folks who work in secular universities found the idea of finding personal congruence with their institution challenging. It is as if you go in expecting only to see brokenness all around. 
how can Christian grad students and faculty find a degree of personal congruence in secular institutions? I think you were talking in the book about uh, the calling of the university and, and personal calling, yeah. Thank you, Jasmine, for filling in the awkward silence there. Um, so I told Joella about this question and we, she said, why don't you respond along the lines of the cities we have gone to? So we went to the Philippines and we lived in Metro Manila, which is 13 million people. This is not an easy city, um, but what we arrived at and found that every last foreigner, non-Filipino that we met was very disparaging of the city of Manila. And we decided, no, this is our home. We're gonna be at home here. And so we started systematically finding those things about the city of Manila that we could celebrate, that we could, that we could actually view as giving a gift to us that we felt that, that was generative for us. And so, but when we came to Calgary, where we live now, we came from Vancouver. And you may not know the Canadian scene, but somebody on this is from Seattle. Vancouver feels much closer to Seattle and Portland. And we're all thinking we're gonna kind of go independent and create Cascadia and the rest of the United States and Canada can go on their own merry way. But we make a great country from Portland all the way up to Vancouver. We came to Calgary, which we associated with oil and gas and the Calgary Stampede. Uh, but we decided very early on, this is gonna be home for us. And we did all the things we do that for us at least make it home. It included the Calgary Philharmonic Orchestra and Chorus, included theater Calgary, and it included three restaurants that for us are just profoundly life-giving. Not to mention the Anglican Cathedral where my wife worships, I join her occasionally, that has been a huge gift to her. So I actually say these words that make some people in Vancouver laugh. I speak of myself as a Calgarian. I said, Gordon, you're not a Calgarian, you're from Vancouver. He said, no, I'm a Calgarian, I have made it home. I have made this, I have become a resident in this city. And around the corner here, there's a bookshelf that has on it 27 walks in the city of Calgary. Joel and I have done all 27 walks. There are walks through the ravines, through the neighborhoods. We've walked this entire city. We have made it our own. Uh, we're not gonna retire here uh, at the next chapter of our lives, but for the time being, it has been a generative place for us. I wonder if the same can happen in the organizations and systems that on the surface may not be deeply generative for us, provide us with what, you know, Jamie Smith at Calvin University called, I'm nested here. He feels a high degree of alignment with that university. So no space, no institution is perfect. Uh, those of you in public universities may wrestle with this more than Jamie Smith does at Calvin. But I just wanna say, be attentive to those threads, those spaces, those places that are generative for you, where you can say, yeah, I'm part of, um, we're, 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 we're very excited. We're, I'm, tomorrow I will hear about a faculty appointment to our university from somebody who's tenure track at UCLA. And I, I, I spoke to her pretty bluntly in the interview. Why would somebody tenure track at UCLA join the faculty of a small Christian university on the Southwest corner of Calgary? And her response satisfied me. And I realized that she was willing to take a cut in pay 
and move to, I should turn the screen around and show you the snow outside. Uh, it's not the weather of Southern California uh, because that she wanted that congruence. So she was willing to let go of the prestige or the profile of a major university such as UCLA because of what she thinks will ultimately create for her uh, a place of greater flourishing. So I'm not saying we don't leave a, a place because of this. I, in the book, I think I referred to Gordon Fee who went from Wheaton to, from another school, then to Wheaton, then to Gordon College and eventually to Regent College, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, pardon me, and then Regent College. And I remember meeting him and just saying, this is where I'm at home. And he was willing to do the discomfort of changing institutions in order to do that. And I'm, I'm, I meet people regularly who will leave a tenured position in order to go to an institution where they'll feel a greater level of at-homeness. I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just saying, I think it has to be an option um, and we, where we don't assume we are locked in. At, on the other hand, if we're gonna stay, we'd better find points of generativity that, that feed us, that fuel us, that make us feel like this is where I want to be for X, Y, Z reasons, whatever it happens to be. I mean, I'd love to, with any one of you, I'd love to walk the campus of your university with you and have you tell me what furrows your brow and what are the points of generativity for you as you walk this campus? Mm. Um, what is it? What is it that keeps you here? What is it that, that brings you to the campus each day? What is it about these students, wherever they're coming from, their demographic that makes you say, this is where I want to be on Monday morning or Tuesday morning or whenever it is you teach. And then, Sorry, this is getting longer, Jasmine. And then for all of us, you're looking for the leverage points at which you can be an instrument of grace-filled change. And they may be tiny, but what are the leverage points that you can shape? What is the committee that you can be appointed to? Where can you participate in some way in, in leverage that brings about generative uh, grace-filled change? Um, We're all, all of us, whether we're part of a denomination, a church, an institution, an academic institution or otherwise, or in our country, um, how can we to use the language of Jeremiah 29, seek the peace of the city or the institution into which we have been called? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't mean this melodramatically, but I don't think you can do it alone. So you're always looking for allies. You're always looking for people that you can leverage your vision, your strengths, your capacity up against the strengths, vision, and capacity of another. Always. Mm -hmm. You're always looking for allies. Mm -hmm. And it's fabulous when with your ally, you go to the resident coffee shop. And if you don't have good coffee, the situation is frankly hopeless. So just to put that out there. But you need, a, you need a, a first class espresso machine that you share the coffee with this ally and talk about how can we be instruments of grace-filled generative change in this time and in this place. I'll stop there. Okay, thanks, Gordon. Uh, I have a couple more questions for you before we open it out for questions from the participants. Uh, the first is, uh, we appreciated the idea of vocation as spiritual engagement and especially enjoyed your broad definitions of hospitality. What are the ways in which we can embody the welcome of God at work?
So I gave a, a talk today on our campus on hospitality. So this is like immediate. And I chose to use uh, the text of Jesus in Luke 14 in chapel today, where Jesus speaks about the poor, the lame, the blind, and the crippled. And he says, these are the ones that you welcome to your banquet, not the people that can pay you back. Hmm. And I just said, so for who are the poor, the lame, the blind, and the crippled in our world, in your world? Hmm. Who are the people at the margins? What does it mean? Uh, so that's the stranger, but I think we need to come closer to home. I, I mean, I, um, I don't think there's any avoiding. So I argue in my book, Wisdom from Babylon, published with an intervarsity, an intervarsity book uh, publication. I conclude that book by arguing that hospitality is the fundamental spiritual practice for the church in a post-Christian secular age, and that therefore we need to learn how to do this. And it begins with the household of faith, and then it, it, it translates out to the stranger and the other. This is highly political. There's no avoiding that. But what it means in a highly polarized era is I need to be able to show hospitality with people within the academy, for example, in my world, or within the church who differ with me on substantive matters. So for me, it's breathtaking that Paul in Romans 14 does not resolve the two big substantive matters in the Roman church. And then in Romans 15, 7 says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. It is for me staggering to realize that in actual fact, I need to show gracious hospitality, a welcome to people with whom I differ fundamentally. That my two sociologists, bless her heart, Moneta, who's from Barbados and is black, and teaches everything she teaches through the lens of critical race theory. She's two doors down from another faculty member for whom critical race theory is neo-Marxist. It might as well come directly from the devil. And these two are colleagues. And my, um, my hope is that on some level, they can actually welcome one another. They can actually be present to one another, even though they differ on substantive matters. But unfortunately, we've come into an era in which it's assumed that I only offer hospitality to people that agree with me on this, that, or the other. So within the church, can Republicans and Democrats actually worship together a common Lord? If they can't, we really are in trouble. And with it, as colleagues, if we can't differ on substantive matters, but actually still be colleagues who go for the requisite coffee together, we really are in trouble. And so I'm, I'm pressing this all the time. And I'm asking even as a, I know as a faculty, we, there are certain students we love to see walk in the door. They are either top grade student, you know, straight A students, or they're musicians, or they're athletes, or they're all of the above. And as athletes, they can help us win against our arch rivals. And as musicians, they're going to be in the choir, and the president loves choirs. That's huge PR. And then they go on to Juilliard School of the Arts, or they go on to grad school or medicine, and they're a creditor institution. But I'm regularly reminding our faculty that we are also welcoming students, uh, young men who have huge anger issues, young women who have huge anxiety issues, who will need to be um, walked alongside all the way to when I graduate, when I hand them a diploma at the end, and that's part of my job, I get to do this. And I'm well aware this person barely crossed the line, but they crossed the line because these men and women were present to them all along the way. And right now, 
I see Karen's she, her. Uh, right now, I don't know about your world, but in my world, uh, people find great offense when I refer to a student as they. And I keep saying, I will call this student what they want me to call them. And I have a granddaughter, Kaya, who I mentioned, whose best friend was a she and now is they. And Kaya says to me, when I can't quite get it, Grandpa, you can do this. <laughs> this 13-year-old, Grandpa, you can do this. What? Call she, they? No, Grandpa, they are not she, they are they. Grandpa, uh, to be admonished by this girl, um, that we want students, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm gonna follow Henry Nowen at this point, that three things need to happen. Number one, they need to feel welcome. Uh, Nowen is big on, on, on the welcome, that this is welcome, and welcome leads to this is a safe place to be, and a safe place to be means that we are, you are able to tell your story. Um, so I'm in a conference uh, two weeks ago in San Antonio um, where the argument was made for theological seminaries um, from African-American, Native American, and Latino students that the majority of these students have experienced some significant trauma, some significant pain, that is a significant mental, emotional, social weight that they carry. And their challenge to us is, is your school gonna be the safe place for them where they, where they are welcome, where it's safe for them to tell their own story. And especially for young men who have experienced sexual abuse, where the stigma is always there for women, but it's, it's even greater for men in a Me Too era. That men who have experienced sexual violence or sexual abuse feel that stigma more deeply. Will your school be a safe place for them? And I just thought, well, that's what hospitality needs to look like. And for what it's worth, I think that teaching only takes place where the professor is hospitable to the student, that hospitality is the essential condition for effective teaching and learning, and that's a Nowenism, if you know the name Henry Nowen. Hmm. I'm rattling off, I'm, I'm rattling on, I'm gonna stop. Thank you, Gordon. And uh, yeah, I hope this won't be a difficult question for you. Uh, as Christian women academics, many of us struggle with living a split personality kind of life where we set aside our leadership gifts when we are at church. Others who are called to vocational ministry struggle to be recognized as leaders within the church. What would you say to women who are called either to vocational leadership or to lay leadership in the church? How do we navigate different points of view in the church on women's leadership? At our university, um, our provost is Pam Nordstrom. She's without doubt the most brilliant, capable person in the building. It's not me, it's not our CFO, we all know it's Pam. Um, but she's not qualified to be an elder in her local church. So the very, the very time, <laughs> just like, seriously, you want to, you want to shake somebody's head. Um, but yeah, that's for many of you, I suspect, uh, that's a tension that you live with. Where, where I have, um, where I have valued the conversations most deeply is with Catholic women. Katerina Schutt is my hero. We were, we worked together doing site visits for the Association of Theological Schools. She is a brilliant academic. She's a brilliant theologian. 
She's a brilliant leader. And she was the, um, they don't call it president, they call it rector or whatever it was of uh, St. Paul's University in St. Paul, Minnesota, Catholic University. Um, her argument, because I would, we're, we're walking down the path back to the office where we're going, and I just got to ask her forthright, why do you remain a Catholic, given how Catholics feel about women in office? And she felt that she could not leave. That's her identity. She was born, bred, and raised a Catholic. But also, she said, I take every little window of opportunity that is given to me. In a sense, the comments that I made earlier, she can write. She's free to write. Uh, she says, I get more opportunities for leveraging my gifts and my abilities than I can actually fully exercise. But I, um, I'm not satisfied. I'm, I'm, I ache. The dean of the Anglican Cathedral in Edmonton, Alberta, is a former student of ours. She was part of my denomination, but now she's Anglican. Um, I can, Shelley Rambo, who teaches at Boston College, her father was my predecessor at this role. Um, she left our denomination for the same reason, because they, we don't ordain women. Actually, we do now, but in fact, my mother was the first woman ordained within my denomination. But we still have many local churches that will not ordain or will not allow women to be elders. I don't know. I think I'd have to have a conversation with you individually to say, why do you stay? Why do you stay with, and I'll name the denomination, given that uh, women are not given the kind of voice, latitude, leverage that uh, brings skills and dispositions that are so urgently needed by the church in our day. And by the way, they're both dispositions and skills. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm curious why you stay, um, and I'm sympathetic when you leave, but I ache for the number of women that before women were ordained in my denomination left. And now we have Presbyterians and Anglicans who have benefited from having them in their midst. Mm. The, the, the book uh, you're calling Here and Now does not include a chapter that I include in another book I published on vocation uh, called Courage and Calling. And in that book, I talk about the cross that we are called to bear. And I think inevitably the question needs to arise for all of us in the, in, the, in, the, in the circumstances or in the life and the work to which we are called, what is the cross that we have been called to bear? Um, and the genius of the cross is that it is born graciously, lightly. I do not come home at the end of the day and meet Joella for dinner and complain to her all dinner about the cross that I have to bear. Uh, that would just, you know, she knows about it. My closest friends know about it, but we don't have to hear about it at dinner every day. But every day, the cross intersects my life. Every day. I do not know what your cross is, but I know what mine is. And I know that I cannot allow a root of bitterness to grow within me. I cannot allow, this is the language of St. Augustine, I cannot allow a hardened heart to, um, to rob me of my capacity for generosity towards God and towards others. I'm not saying that your cross, the cross that you are called to bear is whatever this is that um, raised this question. 
And, uh, and it's, it does seem to be a little ironic that somebody who's ordained within a denomination and who has a senior level role within an institution. And I, I don't, I don't doubt from, and my, and my, my gender and my age has never, or my race has never been an issue. Uh, who am I to speak to this? But uh, it does need to be, uh, it does need to be a conversation, even if it's only a conversation with the two or three others that I mentioned earlier. Um, and hopefully you have, uh, may God grant you this gift of uh, male colleagues who value your voice and value your leadership and defer to it. Um, and one of the things that I have valued where I work now is that um, our provost, as I said, is Pam Nordstrom. The dean of the Faculty of Theology was until last summer, Joanne Badley. And, um, and Joanne had the respect of all of her male colleagues. They would do, they would, they, they would do anything for her. Um, she's tough, but that's fine. Uh, they, they knew how to cross her and when not to cross her. And, and they would jokingly say, when in doubt, take two or three colleagues with you when you're gonna go visit in her office and raise the matter. Because um, if there's three of you, maybe she'll take you seriously. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, I'm nervous to say more. I think more as much as anything, I'd like to be on the road, on, on a country road walking with you, talking about it, how you've experienced it in particular within the church communities of which you're a part and how it has been compounded by matters of race and ethnicity and perhaps uh, not just gender. There's no avoiding the camaraderie that women of color feel on our faculty um, because they, they feel the double of these young uh, men of European descent who struggle to respect and, and the women laugh, are they disrespecting me because I come from Barbados or are they disrespecting me because I'm a woman? Or what is it? And mm -hmm. they, they wrestle with that on a level that, frankly, I walk in the room, uh, a man of my age of European descent, I immediately have the floor. Mm -hmm. I know. No, I don't. I'm sure I take it for granted. <laughs> what do I know? Yeah, um, I'm aware of the time and I, I, I hope, would you be willing to uh, stick around for 10 more minutes if, if folks have questions or are you needing to speak with your granddaughter? She can wait. <laughs> she can wait. Okay, thank you. And thank her too when you talk with her in a little bit. Uh, I'd like to ask folks who might have questions to put their questions on the chat and hopefully we can take a couple. We already had a couple that came in before, and uh, I'll read one uh, for you, Gordon. Um, this was from Kirsten. Uh, what suggestions do you have for learning about an organization's culture and decision-making oh. processes prior to deciding whether to accept employment in it? I, I, this, this was on here, and I think it's a, that's a hugely important question. And for what it's worth, we're asking the question both ways. So when we recruit, we want to know, does this person understand and get our mission? Does this person own our core values? The phrase that I will often use, by the way, is I don't ask the person this. 
But when I, we're a small enough university that all prospective faculty have to meet with me at some point. And I'm, um, I'm asking the following question. Will this person lower the anxiety level of our students and our faculty and staff? Or will this person raise the anxiety level? And in a culture of fear, where we have so many students that have anxiety disorders, I'm sorry, I don't care how gifted you are, I don't care how phenomenal your CV is, we need people that are gonna lower the anxiety level. Um, they've got a sense of humor, they have a sense of self-confidence, they lower the anxiety level when they move into my office, for goodness sakes. So it goes both ways. And what I would like is that a prospective faculty member has the capacity to get a feel, and I use the word feel intentionally. I mean, the ideal is that you teach for us sessionally for a while and you get a rhythm, you get a sense of who we are. But most of, given where we are, most of the faculty that we are recruiting fly in, they're on campus for a day and then they fly out. And what are they gonna get a feel on that day? But as much as they can, I want them to get that. So um, the deans, we have four faculties, the deans will line up a day They'll have dinner with the faculty. The day they arrive, they have dinner with their faculty colleagues that evening. The next day, for sure, they're going to have lunch with students. They're going to meet with the president. They're going to give a public lecture and so on. All of that's happening. You're all familiar with that. I just hope there's enough that they're able to read. You know what? I could enjoy working with these people. I feel at, at some level at home here. Um, and I think it has to be just as best as you can tell. Uh, you're making a judgment call as best as you can tell. What I'm impressed by is that I never get asked by a prospective faculty member, how are decisions made here? Um, they seem to take it for granted. I don't know, they, never, they don't ask the decision-making question. How is the budget decided on? What is the role of the board of trustees? What is the role of the faculty? We have a general faculties council. Uh, how does governance work here? They don't ask those questions, but in actual fact, it matters to them and it matters to them a lot. Um, so faculty get very upset when they find out that the president made a decision. And I just say, well, read the bylaws for goodness sakes, that's my call, it's my responsibility. Not only do I have the right to make the decision, I'm accountable to the board to make that decision. So stop giving me grief. I started this job with thick black hair and you see where I'm at now. Um, but oftentimes I find faculty, I, <laughs> this is awkward, I published a book entitled Institutional Intelligence and faculty who are very, very smart lack institutional intelligence. They lack the ability to ask the question, how does this institution work? How are decisions made? Who's accountable to who for what? And what are, what are the essential decisions by which this institution is gonna flourish? And then what's my role within it? So if I'm gonna serve on a committee to know the difference between, this is a committee that can actually make a decision or this is a committee that makes a recommendation to either the president or the provost or the general faculties council or whatever it happens to be. That is to understand how governance works. Um, I, would, I think you, if you're a faculty member, you need to understand that on the one hand so that you can contribute to the whole. On the other, I would just say, ask those questions up front. And I love talking about it, so sure. Uh, that's I mean, there, there are there are common. Yes, um, we're not our, our university is not unique, but I mean, I'm, I there are five independent universities in Alberta. We're all governed slightly differently. 
And every so often we'll say to one another, oh, you got it good over there. You get to make that decision. In my house, I can only recommend it to the board. And they said, oh, poor you. And then we get sympathy. But um, there, there's, there's certain common th themes that run through all universities, large and small. But to understand how a university is governed, I think is important. And then you can understand how the role that you can play within it or not. The smaller it is, the more influence you can have. For those of you that want to go to Penn State. Anne says, uh, in the stewardship of our lives chapter, you point out that. Uh, oh, I can read it, I guess. Sure, yeah. I'm not sure if it's not showing up on your screen. Yeah, yeah so basically, I was wondering there's one section in the stewardship of our lives chapter where you pointed that we should celebrate our skills, talents, and achievements, and you really like emphasized, like, oh, you did this or you did that. Um, and to me, that kind of stuck out because typically when something goes well, I tend to try to praise God instead of my own skills. So I was wondering, how do you suggest finding a balance between celebrating our own accomplishments versus praising God? Because it feels a little wrong to just bask in the glory of something that we did without giving credit to God. Yikes, on. Um, I'm immediately, um, so I, so going back to Ignatius Loyola, who I mentioned earlier, one of the huge gifts of the Jesuits to me was the affirmation of the significance of human agency. Um, I, I grew up within a religious culture, subculture that God is the only serious actor. And the rest of us are just basically observers, praying that God would act and then thanking God when God did act, praising God when God did something. So anything good that happened, it happened because we prayed and God did it and God needs to be thanked. And... Um, and, and frankly, all the glory goes to Jesus, and there's no glory left over for you. Um, it's a zero-sum game. There's only so much glory to go around, and Jesus gets it all. And therefore, therefore, we would sing a song. Maybe you sang it as a young person as well. Uh, more and more of Jesus, less and less of me. Think about it. The more you sing this song, the less of you there is. Just do the math. Eventually, there is no you. But could it be, and again, this is a Jesuit perspective, could it be that what brings glory to God is human flourishing? The human capacity to do good work actually brings glory to God. Thus, Psalm 67 actually prays, may the Lord bless us so that the ends of the earth could revere him. Rather than thinking there's only so much glory to go around, could it be actually that we celebrate human accomplishment? We celebrate the gold medal. Well, in Canada, we celebrate the silver medal because we're, we're not as kind of obsessed with winning, which is not true. If it's in hockey, we're very interested, especially if it's against the United States of America. I, I will, I digress. Um, that in actual fact, I'm a grandfather that celebrates the gifts and abilities of my grandchildren, and it's not going to their heads. It actually is speaking the truth. Now, on our refrigerator, there's artwork that you would not be impressed with, but as grandparents, we are required by law to be impressed with the quality of this work. But when my wife does a great piece or my, my wife plants a tree and it flourishes, I give her thanks to the glory of God. So it's ad maiorem dei gloria. We, we give thanks to the glory of God, but we do so celebrating the gifts and talents that God has given to each one of us. So when our basketball team last week, at some point, I'm going to celebrate our athletic program. 
when our basketball team was down by 16 going into the fourth quarter and won the game by 10, I didn't just say, Jesus, that was so wonderful. I was down to the court. I met the star player, Itzhak. I went to speak to the coach and I said, that was a character win. Well done. And I, without any hesitation, I praised them for the quality and character that they brought to the basketball court to beat our arch rivals, who I think went flat when they thought they had the game in the bag. So I'm praising people all the time. Down the hall, when I get a report from a student that they really liked a teacher, I'm down the hall, I'm knocking on the door and say, by the way, I was just talking to Michelle. She's in your such and such a class. She really appreciates your teaching. And I don't say it, but I don't, I'm not getting, I don't want this to go to your head. Don't get narcissistic on me. All praise and glory goes to Jesus. That in actual fact, I think that brings glory to Jesus. Uh, that God takes delight in the human, uh, human accomplishment, the human capacity to exercise the talent, the gift, and ability that has been given to us. So on, if you're at my church and you preach a fine sermon, I will tell you. Well said, an apt word in season. When you finish your doctoral work and it's a good thesis and you defended your, your, you did your orals, I will say, well done. I will praise you unapologetically. And I will assume it won't go to your head that in actual fact, you're getting enough criticism left, right, and centered more than balance out whatever it is I'm going to say to you. To do that, I think, if you understand the nuancing here, I'm doing that to the greater glory of God. And God, I think, joins me in delight in the gifts and talents and abilities that he has given to you. So without any hesitation, I celebrate the work of my sons. One's in business, one's a pastor. I celebrate the works of my daughter-in-law. One's a potter, one's a school teacher. I celebrate the work of my grandchildren. And I realize that I have a particular job, responsibility in that score. But on every day, literally every day, my eyes, my peripheral vision is happening. And my assistant, Ellie, that Jasmine mentioned earlier, Ellie will let me know of something that if I haven't seen it, she says, you may want to know that this happened today because she knows that every day I want to praise or thank someone in the building for a task or a work well done. And thank God that God called them to this place and gave them the talent and ability that they exercised. Thanks. Thanks everyone for having been with us today and Gordon especially. Uh being with us for longer than we had informed you. Uh, we appreciate both your presence and all the insights and the nuggets of wisdom that you shared throughout the hour. Nuggets? They were nuggets. all sermons of wisdom. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. No. My mistake. No, no, yeah. I'm teasing. Jasmine, I know, I know. I went yeah. on too long on several of those, what Gordon Fee used to call homiletic moments. And I think I kind of abused the genre of the Zoom call. So <laughs> Nuggets is just fine. <laughs> yeah, and, well, then I think it's good to uh, kind of uh, show by example that you can, they were not Nuggets, they were like, you know, phenomenal stuff, you know, and to, so that everyone kind of, you know, that's also probably, uh, I don't want to generalize, but like a female thing, right? You know, that, uh, oh, like, you know, that sometimes uh, you don't, uh, but you wait for someone else to uh, uh, say that this was good work and that you are diffident to actually say it outright that, oh, this is my work and it's good. Uh, no, I, so. 
I, I know that part of my job, whether I like it or not, because of the religious culture of which I'm a part, that the women academics and the women administrators in our building, they need to know, I think they're doing extraordinary work. Um, and there's just no avoiding that within our religious subculture, um, a male of European descent within our religious subculture, there's just no avoiding. Part of my job is to tell these women they're fabulous and their work is invaluable. I lean into it, I depend on it, I defer to them. Uh, it's essential. So may it be so, not just with my granddaughters. Yes. Well, thanks again. And I'm going to invite uh, Karen to formally conclude our time by uh, praying for you, Gordon, and your work and your family, and uh, uh, praying for the rest of us on the call as well. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the treat of being together tonight. Thank you for all of your good gifts to us. Um, and we're grateful for this little community and this conversation this evening. We do pray uh, for your grace and blessing um, on Gordon as he does the work that you have called him to and lives out um, the life you've called him to, the relationships you've called him to. Thank you for the investment that he makes in all of these situations. Um, and we do pray that you would prosper the work of his hand. Uh, uh, whatever it is that he needs, Lord, we pray that you would provide um, and that you would, yes, prosper his hand and bless his work. And Pray for all of us that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear how you are um, calling us, the ways in which you are inviting us to know what is ours to do and what is ours to say in this moment and place and time. We do long to steward our lives well for the glory of God. And so we ask for grace and strength to do that. We pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Amen. We hope this peek into our book club might inspire you to join us for one of these events in the future. If you're listening to this episode in real time, you could look into our fall book club, which will be focused on the book Agents of Flourishing by Amy L. Sherman. We'll share all the details in the show notes, or you can find out about this or other book clubs at thewell.intervarsity.org. And if you listen to the end of the credits, you'll get to hear an inspiring excerpt from Gordon's book. The Women's Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters, so if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on these wise words from Gordon Smith in Your Calling Here and Now. 
Vocation is about this person, at this time, and in this place. Ironically, when all is said and done, it is not about you or me. And yet we find joy and freedom before God when we learn what it means to be a steward of the life that has been given to us in this time and in this place.